sometimes. Um, okay, if you would open your Bibles this evening to Leviticus chapter 8. Uh, we've got a lot to cover tonight, 36 verses, but it's actually a review of what we covered in Exodus 29 back a long time ago. And uh, it's got its counterpart in Exodus 29, then again in Exodus 40. And now here is the uh, fulfillment in Leviticus chapter 8. So uh, we're going to be going through it, and it should hopefully some of it will sound familiar to you. So, uh, and if it doesn't, that's okay. <laughs> it will eventually. If we have several more chapters that say the same thing, we'll eventually <laughs> all get it. <laughs> Looks like the Lord inspired it three times to Moses so he'd get it. So that makes it makes me feel good. Yeah. All right, let's just take a moment for prayer and get ourselves ready to uh, study the word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, again, we thank you for your love, your your grace. We thank you for your word we thank you for the amazing plan that you've laid out for us in your word and father i just pray that as we open it up this evening that you would nourish our souls with it for we ask it in jesus name amen well leviticus chapter 8 and we might remember the the different chapter divisions uh, a long time ago i was in seminary we had a speaker named ralph braun and he said if you will give each chapter in the Bible a title based on what's in that chapter. You go through and do it and then memorize the names that you have given each chapter in the Bible. When you get done, you'll have 1,189 points of doctrine. <laughs> he said, that was a pretty good, pretty good deal. He said, it'll probably take you 10 years to do it. And I've been working on it for 45 now. <laughs> And I could get a lot of them, but I have stopped and think about think about them. Now, Leviticus is one of those chapters that makes it uh, easier to work with because the first chapter is the burnt offering, second chapter is the gift offering, third chapter is the peace offering, and then the sin offering has got uh, chapters 4 and 5. The trespass offering is chapter 6, <clears throat> and then um, there... Uh, or the trespass offering chapter 7, actually. And chapter 8 is the ordination of the priest. So in Exodus 29, he told Moses what he wanted done. And in Exodus 40, he reviewed it. But it took him a while to build the tabernacle. So once they got the tabernacle built, this is for the ordination ceremony. Once it is built, and he is educating the Levitical priest here, and this is the actual ceremony where things are getting ready to start. We can figure that out because if you read two chapters ahead, you read about the first day of the offerings when the priests were doing the offerings and what happened to Nadab and Abihu. So you, you get a picture of what this is. This is the actual ordination ceremony. Now, <clears throat> we, we're going to find in this chapter the command to assemble. He wants all of Israel there at the doorway of the tent of the meeting. So this is a public ordination. Now, it's not setting up ordination for pastors, uh, but the, all the ordinations I've been part of or seen, it follows a similar uh, type of procedure. And the, it's done, the ordinations usually is a public questioning 
in front of people. There's usually private questionings before they ever get to the point of the public questioning. And then it's a public uh, questioning in front of people. Mark Griffin, the, our church was privileged to participate in that. We had two or three other pastors come in. And uh, then there was a public questioning of him before the actual ordination service where he said, yeah, you're good to go and we're going to, you know, give you a little thing that makes you legal and all this other stuff. He was already ordained by God, but this is a thing that is done before people. And this is a very similar thing that Moses has done. Then uh, we're going to see the clothing for the priest and what Moses is expected to do. The anointing of the priest themselves. We'll see the sin offering for the priest. Interestingly, that's where they start. They get to start with the sin offering because these these imperfect human beings that are being ordained in special positions are imperfect and they are sinners and they are told that right up front in front of all the congregation which which is kind of kind of a neat thing so if you're getting ready to ordain somebody and you ask them if they're a sinner and they say no then maybe they're not somebody (laughs) that you could you should consider uh, or at least question more Uh, then the burn offering for the priest they need to recognize their sinner. They need to come to the altar, the bronze altars where the burnt offering takes place. There are different things that uh, go with each of these offerings. Then they're going to see the second ram of the offerings because the ordination, they're supposed to bring two rams to the ordination and offer up two uh, sheep as sacrifices to the ordination. And then we're going to see the oil and the blood once again. And then they're going to, he's going to tell them, I want you to stay for a week. Don't go outside the tent of the meeting. All the Levitical priests are there. The ordination has been done. They've been anointed with oil. They've been clothed with the proper clothing. And then he says, stay there at the door for a week. And we're going to take a, take a look at that. Now, <clears throat> first verse, the Lord spoke to Moses. Again, I mentioned this is used 92 times in the Pentateuch, and the only place outside of the Pentateuch where it says the Lord spoke to Moses is Joshua 14:6, where Joshua is referring to the fact that the Lord spoke to Moses a lot. Okay, so that's what you'd expect. He spoke to Moses, saying, "Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering." and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread. So we start thinking back through our processes. What have we covered? What have we looked at before? Sin offering, it's a katah offering we're looking at, and a nasham offering, a trespass offering. The katah is the one that covers all the unknown sins. The asam is the one that covers the the known sins. But take this, this sin offering, and it says, and the two rams... And the basket of unleavened bread. Now, interesting thing about the rams is rams are often used for a peace offering. So he is going to ordain them. And uh, we're going to see at the end, one of the rams, Moses gets a chunk of that for his food to eat. So, uh, and the basket of unleavened bread, that goes with the minka offering, the gift offering of chapter 2. He says, an assemble. I, I like this word. It's a hifield imperative of kahal, Q-A-H-A-L. Kahal, uh, 
meaning to assemble. Some people take this because the word ekklesia, the Greek word for church in the New Testament, means a calling together. It's the same basic underlying thought. It's an assembly. In fact, in the New Testament, ekklesia is used over a hundred times, and probably eight or ten of those times it's used for a mob. So it's not necessary. It was a it was a common word that took on a technical meaning, and that technical meaning came came to be the church. Some people take this word assembly here and try to read the church back into the Old Testament, okay, just by word connection. But you can't do that because the church is specifically called a mystery, okay. The, the, the church didn't start with Abraham. It didn't. It didn't start with Moses. just didn't. It is something that became different and unique. Now, <clears throat> he says, And assemble all the congregation. The hiphil is a causative, cause to assemble. In other words, get the word out, tell them all, show up at the doorway of the tent of the meeting. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. When the congregation was assembled... At the doorway of the tent of the meeting, Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded to do. The word for thing is davar. It's, the, it's a word that means word. It's a thing. It's a matter. It's an item. It's a very common word that's used in a lot of different ways. And he's basically telling the congregation the Lord commanded us to do this. Now, when you've got a couple million people standing outside of the tent of the meeting and of course my brain thinks about stuff like that and evidently they had a way of passing it on to the people that couldn't hear in the back okay but he said get them all together now they were camped around the tabernacle by tribe already that's where they were so he says you get them all in this direction and how far they went i don't know but they were in a place where sound evidently could be amplified how they did it, I'm not for sure. We'll ask there. Can, can we get a replay of this, Lord? I want to see the original ordination. How did it go? How'd you get all those people there? And he'll go, well, dummy, take a look. And then it'll be clear to us. Anyway, Moses fulfills the first set of instructions and then waits for the next set. Sounds like a verse we're kind of familiar with. Isaiah 40:31, which is on the back of this. And it says, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. So it's, a, it's an interesting word that is, that is used. But, and it's not actually used here. But it's used in Isaiah 40. It says, wait upon the, on the Lord. So he fulfilled the first set of instructions, which is what? Make the clothing for the priest. Okay? Get the, ta- get the utensils all put together. Get the bronze altar put together. The labor. Get the tabernacle. Get it all put together. And now it's time to, to sanctify the whole thing, including the priest. So this is the matter the Lord has commanded. So Moses did this, and then he waited. That's, that's kind of like the way we should do life, isn't it? We figure out what God wants us to do. Do it. And wait for further instructions. You know, and he'll he'll do it with with his timing. He is then to prepare the selected people 
tribe of Levi, line of, line of Aaron, clothing, because the priest have a specific kind of clothing. The high priest has his own garb of clothing. And the congregation for what is about to happen, which is the anointing. Okay, so he's got them, he's got them ready. He's got everything ready. He's fulfilled what God has told him to do already. And then God said, okay, Moses, the Lord spoke to Moses. Get them all together. It's time to do this. Moses is not just a bringer of the word, but he's a doer of it. And so that's an important thing about communicators. Communicators are supposed to be representatives. So if they are speaking, we should live an ethical life, they should live an ethical life. I mean, that's we things are caught more than they're taught. Uh, they learned that quickly at Glenhaven Youth Ranch. You know, when they were trying to, to teach kids things and they found out the kids knew knew what kind of shirt you wore with what kind of jeans. I mean, they figured all that out, but what you do speak so loud I can't hear what you say. And so they tried to make their life the same as what they taught. And we're all imperfect, but at least you need to make the effort <laughs> to do that. Now, <clears throat> he's not just a bringer of the word. He's not one that just tells them, he does what he's told to do. Now in verse 6, carrying out the instructions. Okay? Because he didn't tell all the congregation to assemble before. Now he said assemble. Okay? I'm going to do this. We're going to anoint these priests. We're going to anoint the high priest. And we're going to do it in the presence of the whole congregation of Israel. And he said that Moses had Aaron and his sons come near. And he washed them with water. Now, we looked at this in Exodus 29. That word for wash is, is uh, hifel perfect of the wow consecutive of rakatz, R-A-C-H-A-T-Z. And rakatz means to wash, it means to bathe. The uh, hifel, actually it's a cow, I said a hifel, it's actually a cow. And, it's, and so whatever it was that Moses, he washed them. Now, were they stripped completely naked? How, I don't know. But we're all in need of clothing, are we not? And if we're going to put on special clothing, we try not to work out in the garden and come put on our tuxedo before, before we go out to perform our stuff. We get cleaned up. Well, it's the same, same picture with salvation. Because salvation is a washing, is it not? And many think uh, that this this early washing kind of foreshadowed water baptism that would come and rise up a couple of 300 years prior to the first advent. But uh, the word wash is interesting. The first use of rakats out of 72 is Genesis 18.4. And Abraham... In Genesis 18, now you got your thinking caps on. Okay, 15 is one of the uh, ratifications of the covenant. 16 is Hagar. This shouldn't have happened. 17 is circumcision. And 18, the Lord and two angels show up. Right? To destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And so when they show up at Abraham's tent... He, want, he says, can I get you some water to wash your feet? Okay, and that's where it first shows up. 
shows up in the hospitality of the ancient Near East and even today. If you if you go visit a tent out in the middle of nowhere, they're going to want to offer you some tea or something. I mean, it it's uh, you they they are required by their tradition to be hospitable, and Abraham was just that. It's interesting. A lot of the a lot of the Arab uh, groups have their foundation in Abraham anyway, so they can look at what they've got of a Bible and they look back and say, yeah, Abraham, that's what he did. That's what we're supposed to do. And so they follow it religiously. They might kill you after they're done, <laughs> but still, they're, they're going to serve you tea and fatten you up before before they do. But anyway, the uh, uh, Abraham extended this courtesy to the Lord and to the angels. And in Exodus 29.4, the instructions to wash the priest were first given. That's when Moses was told, when we get ready to do this, this thing, this ordination, you've got to wash, wash the priest. And, and I believe this is a picture of the Lord washing us at salvation because Moses is told to wash the priest. They are not told to wash themselves. That would have been a hithpael instead of a cow stem. So the hithpael is re- intensive, reflexive, and it said, tell the priest to wash themselves. But that's not what it says. It tells Moses to wash them. Huh. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 to 6, which is the reality behind water baptism. Okay. We need that washing, that cleanness that goes along with it. It's not that water does anything. We're told that in 1 Peter 3. It really doesn't do anything. But what we're, what it's saying is we need that washing of salvation. If you want to serve the Lord, you got to start in the right spot. Okay. Verse 7, And he, this is Moses, put the tunic on him, Aaron, and girded him with the sash. See, this is all the... the clothing of the high priest we learned about at the end of Exodus between Exodus 25 and 30 he's told about all the clothing of the high priest what the high priest is supposed to wear and so we see the uh, sash that was a belt that basically went around his his robe it was very special and he clothed him with the with the robe and he put the ephod on him now the uh, ephod was had pockets in it and he girded him with the artistic band of the ephod with which he tied it to him so here is moses putting the clothing on aaron he is dressing him okay and that's that's the picture so evidently he didn't have a whole lot on whenever he got washed okay and that's we're all standing naked before god anyway so and then he says <clears throat> so this is a picture of the Lord clothing us with a proper attire. Huh. Interesting how things get slipped into the scripture that get overlooked real easy. Matthew 22 verses 11 and 12 is a parable of a wedding feast. You remember that? And there were some people that showed up to a wedding and they were not dressed in the proper clothes. And they were kept out. Huh. The ones that were dressed properly... And where would you think about dressing somebody? Where would that have come from? Third chapter of Genesis. The Lord took the animal skins and he clothed the man 
in the woman. So this is a picture of we have to stand basically naked before God, and we have to be clothed. And it's used that way to describe salvation. It's used to describe clothed with our dwelling on high. And the, the, <clears throat> the study of clothing uh, in the angelic conflict book uh, on the back table, if you go all the way through it, you're going to find a study of clothing. And one of the things we get is fine white linens as believers. That's what we get. And it's similar to what the angels get. It, why does it say that there was an angel sitting on top of the tomb and he was clothed in fine white linen? Just looking for filler words because <laughs> the Holy Spirit didn't have enough words. So he just decides he's going to put a few words in there to kind of flower it up for us. So we'll see it. I think there's all a connection uh, with those. So, <clears throat> and then it's, so uh, verse 8, he placed the breastpiece on him. This is the, the breastplate. Remember the breastplate had the stones for the 12 tribes of Israel that were there. And he says, and in the breastplate he put the Urim and Thummim. Oh, this is the, Lord, what do I do when? Okay, it's a yes-no type of thing. And I don't know how many times they consulted it. I can say probably not enough because <clears throat> they thought they had it figured out. But they they um, they put, this is what is happening to the high priest. And he's getting clothed all this. He gets the breastplate, and in that's the Urim and Thummim. And the answers that come from the Urim and Thummim is what's going to guide Israel. Should we go attack the Canaanites? Should we go this way? You get yes-no answers out of the Urim and Thummim depending on which one the Lord lit up. See, so it's, this guy had these right to his chest, okay, in this breastplate, and when he would go and inquire of the Lord, he that's where he got the answers from. So <clears throat> how important is this? This is the high priest, and he is getting a responsibility, and he's getting the responsibility to all the tribes as the high priest, and it's being done right in front of all of them. There's a congregation outside. Moses is doing this, and he, and they know what all this stuff is by now. And they, and so here's the, uh, here's, okay, high priest Aaron, you're responsible to everybody. That's an interesting position, isn't it? It's kind of like whenever whenever you have a king over you. You shall make the king write down a copy of the law for himself. I love that. What if we had presidents in this country required to write out by hand the Constitution before they took and swore in as the oath of office? At least they'd know what it is. But it also says there's no excuse for not following it. None at all. Now, verse 9, he also placed the turban on his head, and on the turban at his front he placed the golden plate, the holy crown, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. See that? The Lord commanded Moses, and then he says, just as he commanded Moses, so Moses did. So what you find is that great leaders are great followers. 
leaders that don't don't recognize the authority of higher authorities. They just not the good ones, are they? Great leaders are great followers. Now, <clears throat> the anointing of the tabernacle is verse 10. And Moses then took the anointing oil, anointed the tabernacle, all that was in it, and he consecrated them. Okay? The anointing oil. The anointing oil is Shemen Mashiach. It's, it's a uh, oil of the anointing. Mashiach is where we get Messiah from. Okay? And it is a representative, the oil, the Shemen, the olive oil is a representative of the, the Holy Spirit. And it says, so he took this thing and he anointed the tabernacle. So what does that tell you? All of the tabernacle, has, it should should be, uh, the, the Holy Spirit should be revealing the, the, what the tabernacle means and how special it is. It is. It has a special place in the plan of God. And all that was in it, yeah, what all was in it? Table of showbread, lampstand, altar of incense, and there's going to be a special anointing of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I've got other questions about that. Was it that open until it was anointed and then the veil was closed? Or did the priest go in there? Or did Moses go in there? Because he could go in and out of there. Okay, and spoke frequently with God. He could go in. Did he just walk back, the, you know, move the curtain back, step inside and go over and anoint the Ark of the Covenant with the oil? Or not? How did he do it? I, I don't know. But what I do know is that it happened. So, <clears throat> now, the tabernacle and all of its equipment was to be led by the Holy Spirit is also... If you want to look to the uh, the loaves for the uh, uh, tribes of Israel on the table of showbread, uh, <clears throat> they would have oil in them. So if you're going to eat of the bread, you need you need to do it with the right attitude, the the Holy Spirit. What about the uh, light, the uh, uh, golden lampstand that's in there? Well, it had oil in it. That's what kept the lamp burning. And then the altar of incense with the special incense had it mixed with oil. So oil has something to do with every single one of those those utensils. <clears throat> he says in verse 11, And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin, that's the uh, bronze laver, and its stand to consecrate them, sanctify them, set them apart. These are special. It's kind of interesting that I don't know anywhere they made a duplicate. Okay? I don't know that they had a backup inventory anywhere. So they had to take care of these. They had to protect them. That's what they were called to do. And the rest of the tribe of Levi, that was their responsibility. So you got the sons of Aaron were the priests, but the rest of the Levites, their job was to get, to get this, this stuff from point A to point B. As we, you might remember, that ark, once it goes behind that veil, is never to be uncovered. And so they had to figure out a way, and they, they did, to drop the curtains over the top of the Ark of the Covenant so it stayed covered up. That's why the poles so long. The poles were in there. They were not to be taken out. So whenever they got ready to go, you'll not remember, where did the curtains hook? 
right over the veil between the holy place and the most holy place. That's, that's where the curtains hooked. So they'd unhook the curtains. They'd drop that over there. They'd be able to. They didn't have to cover up the others, but they would. They would have the ability to do exactly what God told them to do. So <clears throat> now this was the altar, the bronze label, labor, and their utensils. And verse 12, he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Now. <laughs> Especially the high priest was to be head, uh, led of the Spirit, like the Messiah. Put oil on Aaron's head. Luke 4, 1 talks about how Jesus, in his humanity, was full of the Spirit. Full of the Spirit. What would you expect? Not us that needs a filling, but one that's full. And stays that way. That's who Jesus was in his humanity. How did he face all the tests and temptations? Being true humanity and yet without sin. Because he had the Holy Spirit where he could fully rely on him. I don't believe the Holy Spirit overruled Jesus' volition. Because then he wouldn't have been true humanity. But what he did do was influence him. And Jesus was smart enough to call on him. Just like we are <laughs> supposed to be. But it, we need a new body for we get there. But anyway, verse 13. Next Moses and Aaron's sons came, uh, come near and clothed them with tunics and girded them with sashes. And he bound caps on them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Again, at the end of the book of Exodus, he said, This is what I want you to do. Get these ready for the priest. And one day we're going to do this. Well, they get everything built in Leviticus 8. Showtime. Okay? So God's chosen leader should be meticulous in carrying out prescribed duties. Okay? And I think chosen leaders need to be smart enough to know the difference between what is prescribed and what is described. Because quite often throughout the history of the church, they've taken something that is described <clears throat> and not commanded. And then they've turned it into a requirement. And that requirement has cost people their lives. In many cases, i give you, I, I give you an example. Uh, eldership within the church. Presbyterian comes from presbuteros and it means it's an elder led form of government okay now and in after the reformation uh, 1517 luther walks out of the monastery they start the reformed churches there if you didn't have an elder form of government because they were so reactive against the pope if you didn't have an elder led form of government you were heretical and then came the Episcopalians. That was Episcopos. And that means that there's a bishop or an overseer. Now that's a singular. See? So you've got to fight between <laughs> should one person be the uh, head of the church, so to speak, should you have a plurality of elders, and no place do you find any of them prescribed. You find basically four different kinds of church church government. You find the 
the pastor-teacher form of government. You find the uh, uh, elder form of government. You find the episkopos form of government, an overseer that frequently had multiple churches that they, they looked after. And the last one was the congregational government. And you do find congregational in the book of Acts, okay, where the congregation got together and they voted on it. And the reason we put our Constitution together at Trinity the way we did was to try to take the best of all of those because our deacons are elders, okay? We don't have to have different titles. We got the same function, okay? So they're basically in charge of looking after the spiritual well-being of the church. If I go nutty as a fruitcake, they're the ones that get together and decide need to get rid of me. I mean, that's... That's the way it ought to be. There's an accountability. The congregation nominates deacons. Okay? They're not handpicked by the elders. They're not handpicked by the pastor. Congregation nominates the deacons. And then the congregation votes on deacons. And that's how deacons get elected. So we try to put these together to have a check and balance. And so that's that's part of why it's been done that way. Now, that is not prescribed either. <laughs> okay? That's just a model because you have to have some form of governments, governance to function as a church. You have to have an authority structure. You have to have leaders. You have to have those things in order to function in an honorable way. We've had, I don't believe there's a gift of apostleship anymore. But I'll, I'll tell you this, if you were trying to work overseas, uh, our guy Matthias there on the back wall in Nigeria, where VMI actually started, <clears throat> he's an evangelist. He's a very good teacher, but he's an evangelist. And the next thing you know, there was like 30 churches he'd planted. He didn't have trained teachers, elders, overseers, whatever you want to call them, he didn't have any of those. So he had to be the head of those churches until people got trained accordingly. So he was an apostle. That's what apostles did. Okay? Was was that prohibited? I was, my, my thinking was freed up so much in the mid to late 80s when I realized that, that uh, where... God didn't prescribe it. We had freedom. And that's, that's, that's what we have. The reason for it is so we could go into all the world. And we didn't have to take a form with us which turns it into a religion. We could develop a form in order to function based on the, based on the culture we found ourselves in. The same thing is true of music. <clears throat> Somebody said when Satan fell, he landed in the choir loft. Because there have been more trouble come out of choirs and musicians and churches for the whole history of the church. I mean, you know, even the reformers were singing modern music. We got this battle now, classical worship at 9.30, contemporary worship at 10.30. That's why we have all of them combined and do a little bit of everything. Okay, why? It, the, what does the song say? Is 
is the important thing. And so it's uh, because you know what they were doing in the churches up until the Reformation came along? Gregorian chants. Have you ever heard any of those? Some of them are really pretty. Okay? But they get really old really fast. (laughs) And so that's what they were doing. So when a mighty fortress is our God came out, you talk about heretical music. That was a, a mighty fortress is our church was what they'd been taught for a millennium. And now a mighty fortress is our God. He's a bulwark never failing, not our church. And I mean, it was it was speaking the truth. And so the, they got attacked for, for such music as that. When you get Martin Luther and John Wesley and a lot of them, they're writing beautiful songs. But those are... They were received with much the same animus as as modern Christians received contemporary Christian music. The question is, is it speaking truth and is it communicating to the audience? And that's the questions you get. You have to ask. So, and of course, I prefer some kinds of music more than other kinds of music. You know, I I still can't get into Christian rap, but I, I, I know that, that Jordan and Brad, and they've said, why don't you listen to these? And so I forced myself to listen to them, and they were good. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're good stuff. It's just not, not high on my list I'm going to listen to every day. But my question is, do they, do they speak truth, and are they something that will reach a, a certain group of people that a mighty fortress won't? Because I think that's where the test is. Anyway, you got preached to without even bargaining for that. <laughs> but be meticulous in carrying out the prescribed duties. I hadn't planned on elaborating that much on prescribed tonight. But now, in verse 14, here's the sin offering for the priest. And he brought the bull of the sin offering, the kata offering, uh, usually for unknown sins. He didn't know he did it, but he still did it, and he still got to pay for it. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. That's our word for lean. So it wasn't just that, you know, they just barely touched it. It means that they leaned on it. It's a picture of imputation. They're saying that this offering has taken, taken my sins. And, of course, the reality of the offering is the Messiah himself, which I think Moses understood and probably Aaron, but I'm not sure how much farther it went after that because they got crooked on that. In verse 15, next Moses slaughtered it. You see, this is, the, this is the higher high priest because Aaron's a high priest. Moses is the great high priest. He is the type of Mashiach. That's who he is because he's got to anoint the high priest, which is Aaron. So Moses is the one doing this, this first time. Moses slaughtered it, took the blood, and with his finger put some of it around on the horns of the altar. Hey, the bronze altar that is there. A horn is a, is a picture of power. It's an interesting thing here because he's taking blood and putting it on the horns, which signify power. Is that where we got power in the blood from? <laughs> so, you know... Okay, and it said, and he purified the altar. 
Usually, whenever you put blood on something, it contaminates it, doesn't it? Unless it is the, the spiritual meaning that goes behind it. He sanctified it. He purified the altar. Then he poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. And he consecrated it to make atonement for it. Now, this is the picture, you might remember, of unlimited atonement. Okay, Because Christ's payment was more than enough. This bull had more than enough blood to go around to just sprinkle a little bit here, dab some of it on somebody's uh, earlobe. There was a whole lot more blood than that. So what did you do with the other blood? Poured it out. And sa- it's a picture, sadly, of the fact most of humanity won't accept Messiah. That's what it is. That blood poured at the base of the altar. Now, it says he also took all the fat that was on the entrails and the lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and their fat. And Moses offered it up in smoke on the altar. All the fat is a picture of prosperity. So it is saying that Messiah had more than enough prosperity to take care of all the debts that were owed. All the problems. In verse 17, and the bull in its hide and its flesh and its refuse... He burned in the fire outside the camp, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. If you go back and look through Exodus 29, Exodus 40, you find out that he said, this is the way you're going to do it. And Moses did it that way. Okay, Take this flesh. Now, with some offerings, remember, the priest that made the offering got to keep the flesh and use it as a covering. Okay, Not this offering. This is especially the offering of ordination. So the sin offering covered all the unknown sins committed by the priest. Now, if you're covering the unknown sins too, by default you're covering the known ones. Because isn't that, you know, we, we all know we sin, but what about the things we don't know? So if you're offering an offering to cover all the unknown sins, you've covered all the known sins in the process. There's no real benefit that comes from sin of any kind. Notice this 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 offering is is out and gone. The entrails are gone, all that, and it's saying no benefit comes from sin. Some people say, "Let us sin, so grace shall abound." Romans six, may it never be. Meganoida, that may may it never be. So <clears throat> there's no benefit that comes from it. Now. In verse 18 is the burnt offering for the priest. And then he presented the ram of the burnt offering. And Aaron and his sons leaned their hands on the head of the ram. And Moses slaughtered it. This is a long day at the, at the, at the workplace, isn't it? And sprinkled the blood around on the altar. When he had cut the ram into its pieces, Moses offered up the head and the pieces and the sweat and smoke. And after he had washed the entrails and the legs with water, Moses offered up the whole ram in smoke on the altar. It was a burnt offering for a soothing aroma. Remember the burnt offering, the Ola, carbon, is the one that was to be uh, totally burnt up. It was an offering by fire to the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. But notice it's a soothing aroma. Moses is teaching the next generation God's requirements by his actions. The next generation is Aaron and his sons. They're all standing right there, watching what he is doing. Okay? 
And, and so instead of just telling them all this stuff, he's saying, this is how you do it. These sacrifices are object lessons. They're for everyone to see because there's the congregation. Remembering that they are in front of the congregation. Notice that the sacrifice produced the soothing aroma with the ritual being important but secondary. How they went about doing it, it was still important that they did it exactly in the way that the Lord had said to do it. But the soothing aroma came from the sacrifice. So following the rituals was important. Kind of like when Jesus said, these things you should have done without neglecting the others. Love and justice and grace, he told the Pharisees in Matthew 23. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. Tithing, deal, and mint and cumin. That was, that was in that list. He said, yeah, take care of the details. Do the details the way they're supposed to be done. But don't forget the big stuff. Because the true Lamb of God fulfilled all the types. The real one. John 1.29. John the Baptist, or baptizer, if you don't like to attribute it to any denomination. John the guy that got people wet. Said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I mean, that, that is such a revealing statement. And sometimes when people are studying, when, when they're studying the, uh, the Gospels, they tend to forget that there are four Gospels and that they are of the same events from different perspectives. Now, that's important. It takes two or three witnesses to establish a fact. So when you put four witnesses together, what you have is a height, width, depth, and breadth of things. You've got a pretty good way to do it. But you need to study the other Gospels. I was visiting with some um, pastors the other day and, and said, you know, if you're, if you're going to study a particular passage, you need to study its parallels in the other Gospels. Because what they'll do is give you a more full explanation of the event that's under consideration. All four Gospels don't contain every event that Christ did. Uh, Mark has nine, about 92% of Mark is covered in other Gospels. Only about 8% of John is covered in the other Gospels. So whenever you find an event that goes through all four Gospels. <laughs> That's important. What would you find? The feeding of the 5,000. Interesting event that runs through all four Gospels. So if you're going to study that, you need to go through all four Gospels to get to, to really uh, grasp it. Now, the first ram denotes that the priest must know the importance of satisfying the righteousness and justice of the Father. Because that soothing aroma is about propitiation. And that's what the altar of incense is, which is an offering of prayers. And that is, you know, we come seeking his will. We, we like for him to carry out ours. But Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. Remember? Didn't mean we don't ask. What it does mean is that we accept his, his omniscience and his omnipresence and everything else working together on, on our behalf. I, I saw something today that said uh, fear keeps us glued to the earth and faith sets us free. I thought, pretty good explanation, isn't it? 
What we're afraid of glues us to the earth here. But faith is what sets us free so we can live this life that God has called us to. Verse 22, he presented the second ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, once again, lean. And Moses slaughtered it and took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear. This is the third sacrifice that he has offered up today. And on the thumb of his right hand, on the big toe of his right foot. Notice, big toe, right foot. Okay? Lobe of right ear. It sounds like that God doesn't like things to go left. <laughs> I know we could probably make a whole doctrine out of that. <laughs> but let's not go down that rabbit hole. And Moses slaughtered it, and he took some of its blood, and he put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear. See, this is what, what God told him to do. That's what he did. Here it is on Aaron's right ear. And on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. And he also had Aaron's sons come near. And Moses put some of the blood on the lobe of their right ear. Now it's kind of interesting because he didn't hand it off to Aaron and ask Aaron to do it. So he's basically saying the high priest is anointed to carry out a specific function. Carry the Urim and Thummim and do all that sort of stuff. But the high priest is also the one who anoints the other priest. Here. Our great high priest is the one who anoints who anoints us as priests to God in the in the church. And he says, and then put it on their uh, uh, right ear and on the thumb of their right hand, on the big toe of their right foot. And Moses then sprinkled the rest of the blood round on the altar. And he took the fat, the fat tail, all the fat that was on the entrails and the lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and their fat and the right thigh. And from the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord. Minka offering. Remember what they bring all this, this bread for? He took one unleavened cake, one cake of bread mixed with oil, one wafer, and he placed them on the portions of fat and on the right thigh. This is just exactly what he was told to do. He then put all these on the hands of Aaron and on the hands of his sons and presented them as a wave offering before the Lord. The wave offering said, is this acceptable? Okay. Then, verse 28. Then Moses took them from their hands. See, he gave all the priests this stuff. They said, is this acceptable? And he offered them up in smoke and on the altar with the burnt offering. They were an ordination offering a Mashiach anointing offering, that's ordination, for a soothing aroma. It was an offering by fire to the Lord. And Moses also took the breast and he presented it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination just as the Lord commanded Moses. Remember in the offerings we went through and the priests that actually officiated and did the sacrifice and did that priest got a special portion and what was left over went to the other priest and Moses is cutting all these animals up now and they're all getting burned up except this one because he gets something to eat the second ram was designed to show that the message was to be lived out in their hearing 
right ear, by their actions, right thumb, and their journeys, right toe. So here is the ordination, okay? The blood. The blood of what? The sacrifice. It's supposed to be carried with you. Whatever you hear needs to, be, needs to have the filter of the divine offering. Whatever you do, the same thing. Wherever you go, the same thing. And it says, the cakes, which are gift offerings, were reminders of the bread that came down out of heaven that would sustain them, which they must see as grace. Now here the Jews are out in the desert. They receive this. And what are they already getting every day? Bread. The manna coming down out of heaven. That's what they're getting. Where did they get it from? Out of heaven. It's about as clear a picture of grace as you can. You're out in the desert, nothing to eat. And yet you, you do have at least some sacrificial animals along with you. But where's the bread come from? Moses, the officiating priest, got a nice portion of the offering. And this second ram was like the peace offering, teaching the need for reconciliation. So you put these things together, you've got the burnt offering, where everything's burned up, including the skin. you got the burnt offering. you got the gift offering, that bread. You have a peace offering here, because they could partake of the, uh, of the peace offering. And you got the sin offering, for unknown sins that would cover all the known sins as well. And this is all part of the ordination ceremony for the tabernacle. Now, verse 30 is the summary verse. Moses took some of the anointing oil. The Shemen Ha Mishka. I just like to say that. Shemen is a word for oil. Ha is a definite article. Mishka is the, basically it says, the oil of the anointing. Mishka's anointing. And some of the blood that was on the altar, and he sprinkled it on Aaron, on his garments, on his sons, and on the garments of the sons with him. And he consecrated Aaron, his garments, and his sons, and the garments of his sons with him. So here is the great high priest. Moses is not, because the Lord is. But here is Moses, his representative on earth. He's a picture of the great high priest establishing the authority. This is the authority. This is the way it is, is going to be. Because every organization needs to, you, you can't run things by committee. Somebody has to be able to come together and make the decisions when the committee can't. And so uh, here's Moses saying the Lord has established the authority. This is the way it's going to be. Now, verse 31, Moses said to Aaron to his sons, boil the flesh at the doorway of the tent of the meeting. The, what was left for them to uh, consume uh, and eat it there together with the bread, which is in the basket of the ordination offering, just as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his son shall eat it. Now, these are from the sin and trespass offerings. That, they get to eat part of that. Okay, Now, <clears throat> it says, In the remainder of the flesh and of the bread, you shall burn in the fire. And you shall not go outside the doorway of the tent of the meeting for seven days. Where did that come from? Until the day that the period of your ordination is fulfilled. 
This is a special time. And Moses is trying to let him know it's a special time. For he will ordain you, he says, through seven days. Seven days is a week. I find it interesting that no culture in history has ever had anything other than a seven-day week. Wonder where they might have gotten that from. (laughs) Common ancestry went to the Tower of Babel, and from the Tower of Babel, they took some common things with them to every portion of the globe, is what what they did. Now, the... um, The Lord is commanded to do so, to do as has been done this day, to make atonement on your behalf. Atonement is our word for covering. So he is talking now to the priest. He is talking to the congregation. This is, a, in a sense, a day of atonement because your sins are covered, not, not taken away. Not taken away. Till Mashiach comes and does that. Covered. Very careful word selection throughout the Old Testament. At the doorway of the tent of the meeting, moreover, you shall remain day and night for seven days and keep the charge of the Lord that you may not die. <laughs> for so I have been commanded. <laughs> okay, guys. I know, tribe of Levi, everything is taken care of, everything is covered. Okay, you're staying inside the outer court. You're at the doorway for seven days. What happens if you go out? (laughs) Thus Aaron and his sons, and I like this, thus Aaron and his sons did all the things which the Lord had commanded through Moses. Now think about that for a second. What what if the Lord came to us and said, nobody's going outside of this building for seven days. If you do, you're going to die. How many of us would listen? I hope we all would. <laughs> we try to figure out some way to call Uber or somebody, get some food <laughs> brought in here or something. But I mean, if that, was a, that was about as clear as you get. Now, it's interesting because it kind of says that, that uh, punishment needs to fit a crime. <laughs> okay? When you when you have a crime, you have to have an adequate punishment, and the Mosaic law was perfect at that all the way through. You stole something from somebody, you had to pay it back. Plus, there wasn't no no I I stole a hundred dollars a hundred shekels from you, and I'm gonna pay you back a hundred shekels. It was at least a hundred and twenty shekels that that we know of. So there was a penalty brought in, and for some things it was three or four times what you took. And if you couldn't pay it, you became their servant until it was paid. Very interesting. The initial seven-day ordination set apart the altar and pointed out perfectly that Christ paid for unknown sins as well. The altar represents the most important event in all of history, especially human history. This covers it all. And you can, I, you can put a verses here, Hebrews 10, if you want to put some verses with that. Hebrews 10, verse 10 and 14. One sacrifice for sins for all time, and he sat down at the right hand of God. That altar represents that. And so this was made to be special. And this number seven keeps popping up. It's interesting that uh, um, 
it's been a long thought that human history is going to be 7,000 years. A day is, is a thousand years, a thousand years is a, is, is a day, and seven days of restoration. And you start looking at these, and you go, well, the, there was the, uh, here's a Shabbat. This is a Shabbat week. Shabbat means Sabbath. Here's a Sabbath week for them. And so it shows the importance of, of what it represents. Uh, 7,000 years. Well, how, how long was it from Adam to the birth of Abraham? Roughly 1,954 years. How about from the birth of Abraham to the birth of Christ? Roughly 1,950 years. How about from the birth of Christ to the return of Israel? Roughly 1,950 years. Of course, it's all by chance and coincidence and happenstance and has no design behind it. Interesting, in Hosea where it's talking to the Jews, and he says, I'm going to run you out of your land, and then in two days I'm going to bring you back. That one's often overlooked by people that want to put, make time longer. Two days. Let's see, it took them longer than two days to get run out of the land. <laughs> what makes them think they're going to get back in the land in two literal 24-hour days? How about a millennial day? Yeah. If there's seven days, two days, 2,000 years roughly were spent out of Israel. Interesting the way it all comes together. After two days, I'm going to bring you back. That frequently is overlooked. The penalty for violation of these commands was death. Now, that's, that's pretty strong. And I, I love the fact that Aaron and his sons obeyed. But humbly obeyed. <laughs> they they, got, they uh, got through it. Fascinating chapter. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. And Father, just thank you for the, the privilege of being to, able to get a, a glimpse back 3,500 years, Father, plus, and to be able to look at, at through your word of, of what happened, what you ordained and was some understanding on our part of why. And we thank you for that. I pray we will remember the importance of listening to you and serving you and carrying your message everywhere we go. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.